Welcome to My Reality, the podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Kings Lynn. Showcasing the lived experience of our staff and local community. I'm Mark Breeden, one of the chaplains at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Kings Lynn. I'm your host for My Reality, a podcast where you'll hear people talk about their experiences, how they feel, what presses their buttons and what gets them out of bed in the morning. If you're open to different communities and individuals who have a story lived in the midst of struggle, discrimination and adversity, my reality gives voice to their story. If you're keen to hear people's reality from different spiritual and cultural backgrounds from your own, my reality will help you hear their story. I can't promise what you hear will be easy on the ear, What my guests say may be raw and perhaps uncomfortable. This podcast offers my guests an opportunity to let their lives speak honestly and with integrity. They're invited to share their story with you, the listener, drawing upon the experiences they have lived through. And you, the listener, are offered the chance to hear, to consider your own reality through the lived experience of my guest alongside your own. In this episode, as part of celebrating Black History Month, we are fortunate to have with us the Reverend Carleen Kerr, Vicar of St Faith's Church in Gaywood, Kings Lynn, and Acting Rector. She is Bishop's Advisor concerning ethnic minority communities. She was born in Jamaica and came to the UK in 1970 at the age of 12. She trained as a nurse and was a frontline NHS nurse for several decades. She has a degree in Contextual Theology and a BSc from London School of Economics in Social Policy and Administration. Carleen, welcome. Thank it's you. lovely to have you. Thank you. I'd like to start just to hear your story growing up in Jamaica. Growing up in Jamaica, um, I grew up with uh, my parents and um, two younger brothers and an older sister and an older brother. My parents came to the UK, my father first, when he left when I was five, and then my mother joined him a year later. So I was six at the time. And we went to live with our grandparents in the countryside. At the time, we were all living in Kingston, um, the capital. And we stayed with our grandparents for around five, nearly six years before joining our parents in the UK. Wow. What was that like growing? You, your parents had left. You were what? How old? Seven? I was, well, five when my father left, six when my mother so left. So you were a six-year-old running around in the rural areas. Yeah. Was it safe? Was it free? Yes, it was. Yes, yes, it was. I mean, my grandparents were very strict. They were quite sort of Victorian in their attitude. Um, my grandfather was a pastor with his own church. So, you know, life was, you know, um, being watched was church was going to church. And yeah, but in the main, it was happy. We grew up in a village, had best friends, you know, you felt safe, everybody knew each other, you know, that that sort of thing. But obviously, you know, we certainly at the beginning, we, we really missed our parents and just wondered where they were. Did you get used to that? Because you had pretty well five years yes and no in the sense at the beginning it was hard i mean for any six-year-old when your parents suddenly just disappear um it is hard and there was 
you know, at that age, they didn't quite understand that it meant actually this is a permanent move. They weren't coming back. And I can remember certainly the first few weeks looking out for them. I thought we were just, we just went to our grandparents to stay for a little while. And I would look out for them to come and collect us. And every car that used to come up the road, I used to think it was them. And it gradually dawned on me that perhaps they weren't coming back when the furniture from our house in Kingston started to arrive at my grandparents. And then when we, we started to get letters from them, letters and parcels, then, you know... There were no texts, no face connects, you know, there's no technology then. Absolutely not. We, we received letters, you know, from England and, you know, it was cold and, and, and so forth. Yeah. And then, did you ever think that you might be following them at some point? Um, yes. I wouldn't say it was It was always on my mind. Um, there was that understanding that, yes, our parents were in England and one day, you know, we would join them. But as a child, you, you live sort of day to day, as, as children do, you know, the everyday reality of school, best friends, playing, that sort of thing. But when it finally came and suddenly, you know, our papers were being sorted out, passports were being sorted out and so on, feelings were mixed, actually. Um, yeah. It was painful for your grandparents. Yeah, I had, ambival I had ambivalent feelings mm. because at age 12, I had a best friend and so forth. And you still stay in touch with her? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, we've been friends since age six. She's now in Atlanta in the States. Um, still best friends, still speak on the phone. I, I went, I stayed with her just before lockdown, about three, four years ago. So yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we're still friends. So you, I'm, I'm imagining what it was like. I know what I was like when I was 11, starting secondary school. And I knew the people I was going to be at school with and it was just down the road from where I'd lived my whole life. But you were moving from blue skies, warm weather, friends, at the age of 12, to a new country. How was that? Oh, my goodness me. Um, to say it was, oh, I don't know, profound, dramatic, um, would be understating it. Um, you, we moved from a village, which was equivalent of a little English village, if you like, very pretty. Um, everybody knew each other, um, friendly, lots full of churches and little shops and, and that sort of thing. To a city, to London um, in 1970. And I think the first thing I noticed, I, I, perhaps the first thing was, you know, not really recognised my parents in the sense that they had changed as they would do. You hadn't seen them in any of that period? No, we hadn't seen them. So they had changed. You know, I remembered them both slim, you know. <laughs> um, and in six years, they, they'd obviously changed. They discovered fish and chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and also when you're, when you're six, your parents are huge, they're tall. And, you know, suddenly they're 12 and they're not so tall anymore because obviously things have changed. When we came over, I met, they'd had a son, so we met our little brother, and he was three, three or four at the time, so we met a brother, and my mother was eight months pregnant, so a, a month later we had another brother. So lots of changes there, 
And one of the first things, apart from, okay, how my parents had changed, was the actual house. Because my grandparents had a fairly large house detached, as all the houses were, are in Jamaica. Um, you know, large house. My grandfather was a farmer, acres of land and so on. And, and we came to a terraced house. And it was the weirdest thing because I remember being in the house and I thought, well, how'd you get outside? So you were in this small three-bedroomed terraced house, house in London. Yeah. Of which you were passionate about London. Yeah, and it was it, that, that was the first thing I, I, I thought, well... What was the weather like on the day? How do you get round the house? And my parents said, oh. you don't. You, you, it's front garden or back garden. <laughs> and what was it like? What was the weather like? We came in July, so the weather was warm. And yeah, it was. I also remember that school hadn't finished yet for the summer. So, but we, you know, we, we weren't starting school until the September. So I can remember sort of watching the children walk past the house, um, you know, going, coming from school. Our house was literally about four houses away, four doors away from the school. I could see the school playground from my bedroom window. We were that close. So I'd watch the school children walking past. Um, so and, and that was that was fascinating because I thought I knew that I'd be going to that school and, you know, I'd be with those children that were walking past. So it, you know, it's sort of those things really. The My Reality Podcast, showcasing the lived experience of our staff and local community. You have quite a high profile when it comes to calling people out on issues to do with with racism. We're talking about 1970. I recall during the 1970s we had roots. Yeah. And I remember myself hearing the language used from Roots as a way to beat yeah. particularly Jamaican children yeah. with it. How, how, was your, how was your experience well, of being at school? Oh, goodness me. Um, I, something I always say is that the 70s were a different country. I think people who've been sort of born since in the 80s, 90s and so on, just do not know how or cannot begin to understand how different things were, how, you know, there was explicit racism. It was open, you know, um, in terms of how you were treated, the names you were called um, and, and so on. It was at the time when these equality laws started coming in because, you know, that they, they really had to, you know, things had gotten that bad. And I came from a country um, yes, um, there is division, but mostly on class. I came from a country where I never had to think about the fact that I was black. It never, ever came into my vocabulary or in any, any kind of mental processing. The only time it came up was obviously during history lessons when, you know, we learned about um, Christopher Columbus and you know, the whole Atlantic slave trade. And it was taught in a way, okay, that was where we came from, Africa, end of, no more than that. It, you know, that, that, that was, it was taught as history. When I came to London, that was when over a period of time I discovered racism. I discovered that I was black. And up until then, 
I had no concept about what that meant that meant. And I remember to this day the moment I realized that I was black and that it meant something to some people. Because um I'd been at school and I was actually bullied at school, you know, racially bullied, name calling, that sort of thing. And I remember running to the opening the bathroom door and looking in the mirror at myself, at my reflection, and with this profound sense of shock that I was black. And I remember looking at my skin, thinking, and it was and it was that profound realization that oh my God, I'm black, and that it meant something. And it was a loss of innocence because at that time, up until then, I was just a person. I was just a girl. But suddenly I became a black girl. And that happened quite quickly, did it? That that happened quite quickly. Um, you know, a, a lot of the time, and, you know, I, I was puzzled at what these references were. You know, what are they talking about when they call us, you know, these names? But it gradually sort of dawned that it was because of the colour of the, you know, your skin and that it was derogatory, that it was negative. They were doing this because, you know, the children were doing this because um, they think that your colour is somehow horrible, nasty, ugly. Um, we were told that, you know, my mum said that you lot aren't very clean or, you know, people, you know, it would be called rubber lips. You know, they'd make sort of funny that funny gesture with the lips um or you know they, they'd sing us these little ditties about chocolate you know from straight from adverts on the television it, it was a never-ending it was constant you know and it was it was always you know um negative really um so yeah so that's what it was like in the 70s and it was bad enough coming from the children but a lot of the staff also um, emitted that sort of behaviour. I remember very early on after I started attending school and I was in a music class and the teacher asked me to stand up and she played a tune, a note on the piano and she, because she wanted me to sing it. And of course I was petrified. A, didn't read or understand music. B, you know, I'm new to the country. Every time I open my mouth, people fall about laughing because I've got a strong and Jamaican you're a accent. Self-conscious I'm self-conscious. I, I am a 12-year-old girl on, on, on the, the cups of puberty and all of that. And I'm new to the school and you wanted me to sing in front of all these other girls, you know. So I just stayed silent. And then she said to me, well, I thought all you people could sing. And I remember at the time I went away thinking, what does she mean, you people? Does, does she mean the curse? What does that mean? I, I didn't understand. And it took me a while to understand that she was actually referring to a stereotype of black people always being able to sing. That was the process because racism was so outside of my experience. I had to learn, in a sense, what it is, what it was. And at that age... You haven't developed your full vocabulary no. emotionally. No. You're dealing with puberty, as you described. You've come from another country. You're missing your grandparents. I'm dealing with me knowing my parents again, getting to know them again, you know, or, you know all over again. And, and, and suddenly there's this, there's this huge thing which you're having to sort of grapple the fact 
that you are viewed because of your colour, which you have absolutely no control over, you're having to grapple with what that means and how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? You haven't got the vocabulary to deal with it. This is My Reality from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Kings Lynn. How did your faith kick in at that point? What kind of church were you going to? How did that relate to your church in Jamaica? Did you experience, what were your experiences of church Um, as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl? Yeah, in Jamaica at that time, you know, everybody went to church. On Sunday, you know, the, the, the place was quiet. Anywhere you went in Jamaica, shops were closed, everybody's in church. I think even now, I mean, I can't remember the exact um, statistic, but something like Jamaica has more churches per square acre than any other place on in the world. So if you can imagine, um, and, and things have changed, but can you imagine in 1970, everybody went to church in their Sunday best. In the village I grew up in, in St. Anne's, a village called Epworth, there was a Methodist, Baptist, Anglican, Seventh-day Adventist, you know, all these different churches. Everybody, you know, it, the traffic was just church in their Sunday best and so on. So I came from that background. And and I naturally wanted to carry and do that when I came. But my parents told me that they'd have very negative experience of going to church when they first came. And so they, they stopped. So your parents who were church attending, part of their fabric, of, they came to this country and the, they felt that it wasn't, they didn't feel comfortable in church. They were rejected. You know, they, they sort of went to church and they were made to feel unwelcome. People didn't talk to them, people avoided them and certainly, and, and basically said, please don't come back, you know, find somewhere that is more for you sort of thing that would more suit you. I mean, that was a common experience of many, many West Indians. They were turned away from the churches. This, this, the Church of England has apologised since, but that was the norm. So they, they'd stopped going to church. Um, and I went through a process where I, I wanted to go to church, but I, I didn't until when I was about 13, 14, I started to sort of make friends with other um, sort of black girls in the area we lived in, Perivale, and we'd go to sort of different churches, many Pentecostal churches. But it's an interesting question you ask because around about oh, 15, 16, 17, I did begin to question God. And I and, and it was a, as a direct experience of the racism that I had encountered at school, you know, in, in the in after school, you know, um, I was very friendly with, with a, a white girl at school, we were, friend, we were friends, and, but, you know, she would say, I can't invite you home because my parents don't like, you know, it's, it's I mean, it was that explicit, um, it, it was that sort of thing. So because of all that I'd experienced, I began to really question God, and it was also at the time of apartheid, it was, you know, and I think I became very, I became quite political. Did you become angry? Extremely angry at God. I mean, I'd grown up... Or angry with people or angry with God? Probably both. Growing up in Jamaica, I, I was used to seeing... Um, from Even at that time, I was very interested in the news. And I, I remember watching a, you know, the news about the Vietnamese War. 
I remember the whole civil rights um, movement and so on, because as you can imagine in Jamaica, it was always news, it was on the TV. And I remembered that. And then coming to England and experiencing, you know, racism and, and you know, not just at school, but outside school and my parents and hearing their stories and what they went through and also witnessing how they were treated, you know, when we went shopping and so on. And then with the whole apartheid thing and the sweater rights and so on and what happened to Steve Biko, I became so angry at God that I actually walked away from my faith, you know, and... I look back at that time and I regard it as my long fight with God. <laughs> and if you were saying, if you met your 13-year-old self or your 13-year-old self met you wearing the dog collar of an Anglican vicar, yeah. what would she think? Well, precisely. I would say, you know, if you had told me that this was what was going to happen. I would not have believed you in a million years. You're listening to My Reality, the podcast. You succeeded through school. You went on to train as a nurse. So you were obviously very determined. You you could have gone, you didn't run away from it. You just thought, right, let's get on with it. And you trained as a nurse. How was your experiences in the NHS in the 1970s? Yeah. Um, well, at the, at, at, let's sort of backtrack a bit. Mm. I mean, I, I succeeded despite everything that I'd been through or in spite of everything I'd been through. When I was at um, school, I was predicted not to succeed. You know, the, the, in the main, the black children, there, there were two types of qualifications. There were O-levels and CSCs, and all the black kids were put into the CSC stream, including myself. And I remember practically begging if I could do O-levels, and it was a no, despite the fact that I was getting A's, A's, A's. You know, and I said, could I, can I switch over? It was no. And at the end of the five years, when I was in my fifth year and we all had, we, we all saw a um, careers advisor. I remember she wrote, um, Carlene is only fit to work in a factory or do an office job such as a messenger. She actually wrote that. And... So, so, so that was the expectation of me. And I remember when I left school and you know, I, I went into a good job because I went to work for the civil service and you had to take a maths and English test and I passed with flying colours, you know. And then it sort of start, it started from there. And then I went into, I decided, okay, I actually want to work with people. I don't want to be, I was working for the Inland Revenue. I thought I don't want to be doing tax. And so I, I applied to be a nurse and it was much the same thing that I encountered at school. There's a two-tier system. There's SENs and SRNs. And in the main, if you're black, you were put to, you know, towards SEN training, state enrolled nurse training. You know, even if you had the qualifications, even when you when there was a test available that you could sit, that you could take. And I remember asking to take it and it was a no. No, no, no. We we feel that you'd best you you, you know, you'd best in this particular role. So this was in the 1980s? This I started in 1978, so it was still in the 70s. And most, in my set, you know, in my cohort, the majority of us are black. I mean, and in 
the and the the girls who were training for state registered nurse they were with that exceptional white and the majority in training for state enrolled nurses were black and you sort of realize you know what had happened i remember an interview i had where i think the 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 nursing officer interviewed me she could see that yeah this is a bright young lady and so on but to justify not allowing me to train as a state registered nurse she asked a lot about my background and when i mentioned that you know i helped to look after my younger brothers when my parents were at work in the, in the evening she said well that's it then how can you train as a registered nurse you you know because you have this responsibility a practical job it, it, she, she i could see she was digging for something to and that's that's what it was like so i trained as a state enrolled nurse but whilst i was training i realized that i'm so I can do so much more than this. You know, I am capable of being a sister, a ward manager. And I remember when the hospital I was working in, they were about to close and the nurses were being sent elsewhere. And one of the um, telephonists at, at the switchboard said to me, Colleen, she said, you know, you, you know, you're so bright, you know, why don't you go and do something else and so forth and so forth. I then decided to do, to go back to education. And I went back and I did my O levels, mm -hmm. something which was denied to me. At, I was about 23 at the time, and I did my O levels. I did five in one year, yeah. and I passed them all. And I was the student of the year for that examining board because I, I'd achieved that. Yeah. And and then I did a, a what they call a threshold course for people who for adults who want to go on to higher education. So education was very much about empowerment, the, the low, the, I mean, grow, I imagine growing up in that kind of environment, that your, your self-esteem was low, you're confused, but you, you pushed through that. I mean, I'm fascinated yeah. Yeah. how you joined a church that in the 80s wasn't only if you spoke with an accent, you struggled to get into the Church of England. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it? I, I was working as a nurse, and I was working with this lady, a friend of mine, and she kept inviting me to church. She attended an Anglican church, and she kept inviting me to church. And you know, and literally to, you know, to shut her up, I thought I would go because she's persisting. So. I went, and to my surprise, I, I rather I quite liked it. You know, it was a very mixed church. It was a church in Wembley. It was very mixed, very diverse with West Indians, Africans, Asians from India, Sri Lanka, and so on. And I quite liked it, but I didn't think, oh, I'll definitely go back. I went, and I thought, okay, that was quite pleasant. Full stop. Um, Q, uh, perhaps months later, um, another friend. I was staying with a. I went to stay with a friend in Croydon, and. Um, and I sort of realised that it was a little bit of a setup. She joined this church, which was a bit suspect. And, you know, her friends came and I felt they were trying to pull me in. You know, it was a bit of a, it, it was it was very uncomfortable because I, I felt at the time, is this church a cult or, you know, it's very, you know, they're trying to sort of pull me into something that I wasn't very comfortable with. So I stood my ground and I didn't go to church with her. That was on Sunday morning. And I went out and into a garden and I laid down. And whilst I was there, I had a vision of a church. It was a very strong vision. And I remember thinking, wow, something just happened. 
you know, who lies in a garden and sees a vision of a church, which was amazing. And I felt then that God was telling me something that actually I should start attending. So I started attending St. James Church, the same church my friend had invited me to. And after attending for maybe, I don't know, perhaps two years, I was at home one evening with my daughter. By that time, you know, my marriage had failed and I was on my own with my daughter. And I was in the kitchen and I can remember to this day, something happened which I can't quite explain, but there was a an explosion in me. That's the only way I can describe it. It's It was like something, there was just this explosion in me. And I heard this voice saying, you know, I want, this is what I want you to do, to train as a priest, go and speak to John. And John at the time was the vicar at St. James. And I so went to see you, him. you trained, you... You, you, you studied theology, contextual theology, where you got um, a degree. You were ordained. You did your curacy. But it was painful. I, I mean, you described it as painful. You particularly, I remember you commenting on being on a retreat and you saying, why must, why did I get this vision? This is not what I want your spiritual director said some words to you or about the mirror. Um, yeah, I, I, I had a very difficult curacy. Um, not the whole time. I mean, that along the way, I did meet some, you know, supportive, supportive encouraging people. Um, but I did experience um, some difficult difficulties. And, you know, so, some of it was due to my, you know, to being black, a black woman a confident, intelligent black woman, which a lot of people aren't used to dealing with. And anyway, I decided to go on a retreat. Um, it was in Essex, run by nuns, and it was wonderful. I remember sitting in my room and I was praying to God and I said, why did I experience this? Why did I go through such difficulties? You know, why? And it was it was God's voice. It wasn't a spiritual director. Whether you want to say it, it was the voice, um, whether it was my guardian angel, but it was as clear as clear as day. And the voice said to me, um, "Because you held up a mirror, which showed them that all was not right." And and instantly understood that it wasn't me. I hadn't done anything wrong. It wasn't anything I had done. It was simply my presence which had caused the upset. So you're putting a mirror up to people to show them that things aren't what they seem, things aren't nice and comfortable. Yeah. And the problem isn't me, a black woman. Yeah. The problem is you. Yeah. The problem is the way people... Is how they relate to me. It's how they engage with me. It, it, it's the problem is, is um, what people is the unconscious drives, motivation, forces within people, and therefore, and how they relate. This is my reality from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Kings Lynn. It sounds exhausting to be you. It sounds exhausting to be on the receiving end to experience god who's saying well i've got a vision for you there's a vision and that's not going to be easy because you have to be a voice 
you are speaking truth to power. You are a prophetic. I mean, would you see yourself as a prophetic figure in the <laughs> sense of challenging the religious values that are still deeply racist? Yeah, that's interesting. Or is that a bit strong? That's interesting. I've never thought of it in, in that way. Um, it is complicated. Sometimes, I mean, I do believe, you know, we are called and we're called to particular ministry. And I believe I have been called to this ministry because it is about justice. And justice is on the heart of God. God is a God who's passionate about justice. God loves justice. Yes. Whether it's about the economy, whether it's about race, God loves justice, poverty, gender. He is he's a God with justice on his heart. And I do believe I've been called to, to this ministry. And one of the things about being called, and this is something a lot of what well, sometimes I wrestle with, is the fact that if you're called to something like this, it ain't going to be easy. It is going to be hard. It's going to be tough. And that's something you have to you have to accept. But you but along with that, you have to learn how to manage it so it doesn't actually consume you or destroy you. So how you. do you care for yourself in the midst of this? How do you live with this? It has taken me a while to be able to and, and I won't say it's it's easy. There are times when it still knocks me, when I'm still flawed, when I still get angry. But I lean on friends. And I've you know, seen you in the gym. Yeah, yeah. I lean on friends, pick up the phone, ABC, this happened. And I don't, you know, you, you, you need to do that. You need to offload. Um, I have therapy, you know, I talk about it. You, 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 you know, they, you need to understand why you reacted that way. Why did it affect and you that you, way? You, you've had this since you were a child. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um I read stuff, read, 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 you know, self, well, self-help articles, books, all of that. And ultimately, ultimately, always go to God. Staying in touch with God. Always. And in a myriad of ways, you know, whether I rant and rave and cry and why and why. And just, but always, 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 he, he shows me that he is with me. Whether he shows me that in visions, in dreams, um, or you know somebody I haven't heard from for a while, I suddenly get a card from them, an encouraging card with words with the words that I just need to hear, or it's somebody from the congregation, or it's somebody not from the congregation who just tells me something which is so encouraging. So for people, or maybe listeners who have serious doubts about God. And you will empathise with them because you went through that period in your life. But you, you kind of mentioned there that there are kind people, there are wonderful people in the church. The church was instrumental in South Africa in dismantling yeah. apartheid. Yeah. And so there's much to celebrate. And your your life and your ministry yeah. have been very instrumental in challenging people as a mirror Look, take a look at yourself. Yeah. You are complicit in this. Yeah. It's not somebody else's fault. The My Reality Podcast, showcasing the lived experience of our staff and local community. I'm kind of thinking on an easier topic. How do you, what's your music? How do you relax? How do you chill out? At, at first, let's say I don't think I chill out enough. I'm still working on that one. As you mentioned, the gym. 
so I like being physical, physically fit, whether it's walking, running, just going to the gym, staying healthy. Friends are a big, you know, plus for me, big um, area of support. I am passionate about films, so they're my go-to place of just escape, you know, and films, and I would say, you know, what I call classic drama, um, very, you know, very good TV dramas, music, huge um, and so on. So that that that's how I escape. So you love sitting down with a good Netflix box or yeah. something. I shouldn't yeah. be advertising Netflix, should no. I? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but yeah, but yeah, films or, or or writing and writing. So you write, you pray, yeah. you go for walks, you go to the gym, and that's how you survive in the midst of that crazy world that you have have lived through. Yeah. and flourished you you have no regrets no but there you and another way of coping is boundaries you need to set yourself boundaries you need to say okay if this particular individual for whatever reason um can only speak to you in a particular way or and and so on or says weird things to you you know you you set boundaries you you limit exposure to that person <laughs> um you know, it's that sort of thing. You don't put yourself in the position where you... It's about self-protection. So you don't put yourself in a position where you are going to get attacked. So, Carleen, you have put yourself in the front line. You were put in the front line against your, your choice. You probably would have loved to have stayed in Jamaica. And you flourished, as I've said. I mean, I'm thinking now... There's no talk of retirement yet, but I know that there's changes you'd like to make in your life. I'm also, I'm wondering, how would you like to be remembered? Wow, what a question. How would I like to be remembered? Um, by the ones that really matter, family and friends, as somebody, I hope they'll remem remember me as somebody kind, helpful, generous when I can, and who flourished, who, who despite everything the setbacks the, the, setbacks, the obstacles that were put in your way always got up no matter you know um i get knocked down but i get up again um my brother one of my brothers probably put it subtly but i, I try not to say the word he actually said he said carlin's the sort of person who will fall down in but will get up smelling of roses <laughs> <laughs> but carlin it, it's i've known you for a bit and it's been a it's been challenging and it's been lovely to hear. Well, lovely is not the word. You've shared with us something very powerful, something very evocative and challenging for us to face. Kindness is something that you'd like to be remembered for in spite of everything that you've faced. But sometimes you've, you've had to confront unkindness. Yeah. And is, are there ways of confronting unkindness with kindness yeah um i've gotten to the point and it's taken me a while i'm going to be honest with you i think there have been times when um, people have been unkind people have been rude people have been cruel and i have taken it i've not um i've not responded because i've been, absorbed it i've absorbed it um because I've, there's a, th a thought in me that i'm going to react and I'm going to react inappropriately. I don't trust myself to respond 
in an, in an appropriate way. Um, so I've absorbed it or I've told myself, oh, it's gone over my head or I've ignored it, but I haven't ignored it. I've absorbed it. And it was a few months ago, you know, I realized that actually it's been storing up in me and it's, it's damaging me. So from now on, I won't take it. I will always respond and respond in such a way, you know. Um, so, so, so now I don't. I, I don't take it. I don't absorb it. I always respond by either saying, I don't understand what you mean. Do you want to, could you clarify? Yeah. Or would you not address me in that manner? I'd like you to address me in the same way that you would address any so other person. So that's not being unkind. It's not being unkind. That's actually being a person yeah. of integrity. Yeah, th that's right. I'm thinking of a question I, I want to finish with. And it was a question that was presented to me by one of my spiritual guides as a young man. And he encouraged me at certain stages in my life to sum up my life in a sentence, as a metaphor, what metaphor would you use to describe your life? Wow. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, you are a little bit. Um, a metaphor that would sum up my life. Mm. I, I, I would perhaps, I would say I've, I've always been a fighter and I've always won. You know, I've always fought and ultimately... God, with God at my side, I have always won. And to this day, I know that no matter what happens, I will always win. I may not win immediately in the battle, but down the line, I will win. So I think that sum up my life. No matter what's happened, I've always risen above it and I've always won. So Carleen Kerr, thank you for talking to us. Carleen Kerr, the winner. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> My Reality, the podcast. Please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our staff networks to find out more about how this series is raising awareness by having a voice that counts. Together, we can strive for change.